Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. The Justice Department has named a third-party manager to oversee Jackson, Mississippi's beleaguered water system. DOJ acts to clean up Jackson's failing water supply. Hawaii volcano eruption shuts down global CO2 monitoring site. Plus, as all of you know, there are tribal communities at risk of being washed away by superstorms. Biden Interior Department announces funding to help tribal communities escape rising seas. All of those escapes and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. He gave voted four times, four times against the Keystone Pipeline. Y'all know what that means? Do y'all know what that means? He gave up our energy to the enemy. The enemies being Canada? Good luck, Herschel Walker. This is your Green News Report. Okay, so seriously, Desi Doyne, do you have any idea who Herschel Walker is referring to as the enemy? (laughs) No. When it comes to the Keystone XL pipeline? No, I had trouble following his remarks completely. I don't understand why. What do you got for us today? Well, first, the Justice Department has sued Jackson, Mississippi, for failing to provide drinking water compliant with the Safe Drinking Water Act after historic flooding in August caused a water treatment plant to fail, leaving residents without safe tap water for drinking and washing for weeks. The department will also appoint a temporary third-party manager to stabilize and hopefully improve the city's drinking water system, which has been plagued by failures for many years. You're welcome, Mississippi. A new study warns that the freakish record deadly heat wave in the Pacific Northwest in summer 2021 that killed hundreds of people in the U.S. and Canada was not a one-time black swan event, but a preview. The new study in Nature Climate Change projects that due to global warming, Such extreme heat events will likely recur in the Pacific Northwest every 10 years or so by the year 2050, unless governments act more swiftly to cut fossil fuel emissions. Yeah, they're in trouble. A different study has found that winter has warmed the fastest of any season in the United States, according to Climate Central. The researchers found that the magnitude of winter warming since 1970 has been the most extreme in the Midwest and Northeast. In Hawaii, the eruption of Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcano, has shut down the global carbon dioxide monitor that has been tracking levels of atmospheric CO2 since the 1950s. Lava flows cut off road access and electricity, knocking the site offline possibly for months. But the world does now have other monitoring sites to make up for that unfortunate gap in data. Any idea why we built the carbon dioxide monitoring site right next to an active volcano? Yes, it's the perfect place on the planet to monitor global carbon dioxide because it is above pollution and it is most representative of the global atmosphere. Huh, okay, if you say so. I don't say so. Scientists say so. Don't listen to scientists. In other news, the Bureau of Land Management this week proposed new tighter rules to curb climate warming methane emissions from oil and gas drilling and reduce wasted natural gas on federal and tribal lands. The new rules tighten requirements for drillers to fix leaks and reduce flaring. That's the burning of methane gas at the well or venting it directly into the atmosphere, which wastes the resource and cheats the 
public out of royalties. Hasn't the uh, federal government been going back and forth on this for years? Obama tried to do this. Trump stopped it. Now Biden's doing it again? Yes. These are actually much tighter rules than anyone has ever proposed before. Well, let's put them in place quickly, shall we? It matters because methane is a short-lived, potent greenhouse gas with 80 times the warming power of CO2 over a 20-year period. So rapid cuts to methane leaks pay off big in reducing near-term warming. Bigly. Good news. Pennsylvania's Democratic Attorney General and Governor-elect Josh Shapiro announced this week that Cotera Energy has pleaded no contest to environmental crimes for polluting water supplies with their natural gas fracking operations. The company will pay $16 million to construct a new public water supply in Susquehanna County. Nice. Finally, at the 2022 White House Tribal Nations Summit on Wednesday, the Biden Interior Department announced additional funding to help several Native American tribes move their communities to higher ground, away from rising seas and the worsening impacts of climate change. It's part of a new program to create a blueprint for the federal government to help other communities, Native as well as non-tribal, move away from vulnerable areas. Here's President Biden at the Tribal Nations Summit. As all of you know, there are tribal communities at risk of being washed away by superstorms, rising sea levels, and wildfires raging. And it's devastating. That's why today I'm announcing a $135 million commitment to help 11 tribal communities from Maine, Louisiana, Arizona, Washington State, and Alaska to move, in some cases, their entire communities back to safer ground. And so it begins. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com. We don't just push the victims to forgive. What? From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. In our chronically short attention span age, it's more important than it's ever been to connect with themes and thoughts that take some time and effort to take in and process. And no matter how much technology advances, good old books are still the best way to do that. This week, I wanted to take a look at some exceptional religion-themed books that have appeared in this past year. We're not doing some kind of ranking, but highlighting some of the writing that was noteworthy to me and the team here at Interfaith Alliance. Whoa, wait, we ask things of the perpetrator? Wait, the person who did harm <laughs> has to do stuff? A super important theme in this age of conflict and division is right there in the title of Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg's latest book, on Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. And it speaks volumes that it comes from a Jewish faith leader in an age of growing anti-Semitism. We've seen a lot of conversation in certain Christian spaces around uh, losing America, quote and unquote, that America is turning on Christianity. And I can't quite see it that way as a Muslim. Another timely release was Harun Mogo's Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision of a Muslim Future. Harun has been on State of Belief a number of times and brings an unflinching honesty to both his observations and his suggestions that is very present in his latest book. 
it might mean that you are more at risk uh, for harm for yourself, but that's something that you should be willing to do if you truly believe in justice for everyone. And then there's the book that got me thinking about doing this episode in the first place, The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life from Simranjit Singh. It breaks new ground in religious literature, and like all of the books we'll be talking about on today's show, it's a great gift for this holiday season. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I will be in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. And if you haven't pitched in yet, Information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest, award-winning author Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg is scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. She's published seven books so far, and the latest, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, came out earlier this year. It leans on Jewish wisdom and encompassing universal values. It's a powerful, super timely, and ultimately practical call to action. Danya, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me. So why this book now? So the book really started out of Me Too uh, five years ago, as we as a country and a culture began asking a new set of questions. Uh, There were all of these famous men that had been named as sexual abusers and issued these weak sauce statements, you know, yes, I did it, but the real problem is that my family is sad now, or what are my fans gonna think? And, you know, nobody's really mentioning the victims, the impacts and the harm that they caused, right? It's like, oh no, you know, this is so sad for me personally. And this question of like, now what, right? They've issued these statements, they're saying they're gonna go away, maybe they're fired, I don't know. Like, now what? What do we what do we do? And um, particularly if it's not a people are pressing charges, getting into the legal department. And a friend of mine who's a journalist asked me some questions that I, I responded, and then I sort of threw the my response also on Twitter, taking the Jewish framework for for repentance, which for us is not about feeling bad. It's about a set of actions that one does to take responsibility for one's harm and to center the victim's needs, attend the victim's needs and clean up your mess, but also do the work of growing and changing so you don't do the thing again. And I was like, well, here's here's what we would look for if these dudes were were really taking seriously what they did and cleaning up the, the work. Like, this is my guess about what we would see in terms of how it would leak out in terms of the public and the impact because they didn't just harm these specific victims. It's like they're fans and like, what does this mean about rape culture? And they're all of these eyes on these people. And um, and the response was shocking. People were like, wow, 
whoa, wait, we ask things of the perpetrator? Wait, the person who did harm has to do stuff? We don't just push the victims to forgive? What? And I started to, in these dialogues with people on Twitter, I started to realize that our culture just has this hole in mm. this space that we don't know what to ask of perpetrators. We say we want justice. We don't always know what that means and is, often sounds like revenge. And um, mm. Mm. we push, we put, put all this emotional labor on victims yeah. without knowing how to care for them. And, uh, you know, uh, Judaism has a whole system. Yeah, well, so talk a little bit about that. Like, can you, I mean, I love it when, um, I love it when someone like from the 500s or something like that comes in. You know what we need now? We need someone who was living 1500 years ago who actually was thinking about this and actually might have some wisdom to offer. I mean, tell t talk about like where you went uh, to find this, you know, to find some of uh, the Jewish wisdom that you ended up uh, offering. I love me a dead guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. If there's one quote from this, uh, if there's one quote we're going to like lift out, Rabbi oh, says she loves a dead guy. Okay. Good. We got that much. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm running around reading books. Um, but, you know, I, I discovered feminism and philosophy both in high school. And so <laughs> reading dead guys in library. Yeah. Wow. Nice. So Maimonides, the... 12th century philosopher. I, I, my my Robert fault. Robert. Sorry. Well, I was I was in the wrong century. He's quoting fifth century people. So it's you're okay, legit. Okay. Okay. You know. Okay. Okay. But Maimonides is 12th century. He's a philosopher. He's a Torah scholar. He's um, he's a physician. He's a one of the greats, greats of my of my tradition. And what he did is he took uh, uh, like basically all of the wisdom that was all over the place in different places around our tradition um, up until then. And he reorganized it and he, he made some, some personal choices about, you know, what positions we're gonna take. And, you know, there's a lot of chutzpah in, involved in his rearranging, but um, you know, what, what pieces of what things, uh, but he rearranged things in a way that it would be easier for people who are not scholars to understand what to do and how to do it. And like people mm. who are really scholars can continue to read the winding debates of the Talmud and the regular folk just need something more straightforward. And in that rearranging, this book called the Mishnah Torah included what we call the laws of repentance, Hilchot Shuva. And when I read the laws of repentance, I see five distinct steps for how you do the work of owning the harm that you have caused, attending to it and doing the work of transformation. Mm. Uh, mm. Can you give us just, you know, yeah. I, I, I want people to read the book. So we are gonna, you know, uh, On Repentance and Repair uh, is the book, but but we're a taste just like, what are the five steps, if you don't mind articulating those? Um, and, uh, and then how, you know, some of, maybe we can talk a little bit of like, an example of where you've seen that done well um, so that people might be, you know, not so afraid of actually entering. Cause I think there's a lot of fear about like entering into this conversation even. 
Mm-hmm. There's there's so much fear. Um, so, and, and so understandably, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, but but let's start with the five steps. Okay, so number one, um, you have to is confession. You have to own what you did out loud, fully. No hedging, no trying to make yourself look better than really is merited, right? No, what I meant, really, I'm a good person, right? We don't care. Own what you did, name it, which you'll note requires all this pre-work of having to cross this bridge from the story of like, I'm always like the good guy. I never do anything bad, right? You have to kind of acknowledge Mm. that, listen, if you're not an irreparably bad person if you caused harm this one time, right? We are all people and we do stuff. And sometimes the stuff we do is great and sometimes it's not so great. And when we do the not so great things, we need to clean up. And so you have to face the part where today was not, you know, like you, you messed up and name it and own it. And ideally, like it's praiseworthy, Maimonides says, to do it publicly because that is A, asking for accountability, right? From everybody. You're saying, guys, I'm, I'm, I need some help here, mm. right? I'm struggling. Like mm. some, in some way, I was not able to be my best self and I need your help and support to mm. become the kind of person that I want to be, right? right. right? I'm, yeah. I'm my journey with anti-racism. I'm struggling with my sobriety. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to be this angry all the time anymore, whatever it is, right? Right. Um, so that's owning it. Yes. And it's it, it's critical for the victim because this is this can be the end to the gaslighting, uh-huh. right? It can validate their experience, right? If this really happened, and it was not their fault, right? They didn't uh, invite whatever. They didn't lead yeah. anybody, you know, right? It's, it's clear and it's clear to everybody. Um, so that's step one, owning it. Step two, begin to change. Because if mm. you finish this process and then you go around and go do the same thing again, like there's no, you have, we haven't succeeded, right? right? Right. You make future victims like, right. no, which you again, you know, I mean, no. if you say, you know, change takes work like yes. that's, you know, I mean, so that's again, like all of this is actually very um, it, it's about actions, uh, the action of confection, the action of work to change. All of it is like it's all but it's but I think that, you know, I, I think that once you is what I what I'm hearing is a roadmap, mm-hmm. which sometimes is what people lack. Uh, and so, so you ha- change and then what can that lead to? So, well, first, you know, like change can be a d- bunch of different things. Like, do you need therapy? Do you need right. to hook up with a spiritual director? Do you need to call your sponsor? Do you need to learn more about uh, anti-racism or trans liberation? Right. Do you need to teach the friends that make you behave badly. If if we're talking about an institution that's caused harm, does HR need to revise their policies mm. so mm. that they don't bury complaints anymore? Do mm. they need to fire mm. their board, mm. right? Mm. What, what needs to happen so that that can't happen again? Mm. Then we get to amends, right? Oh, then right. what does the victim need? What kind of care and redress would feel like you can't undo what happened, but it will feel like at least um, it can sew up 
that hole in the cosmos that uh-huh. has been created, right? Um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's remuneration. It is reparations. Right, right. right? Um, right. And I'm using that word intentionally. No, no, uh, I'm, I'm hearing it. And um, and you can't make amends at a person, you because then you're if you decide for them what the reparations are, then you're still treating them as an object instead of a an autonomous subject that gets to decide for themselves. You have to ask yeah. what do you need, and the answer might be different than what you would have assumed, and yeah. that's a learning too, right? Right. And then after amends, after you have done the work of actually fixing in some way then the apology right action first uh-huh. second oh, that's super interesting mm-hmm. yeah isn't that isn't that interesting like you know when they say actions speak louder than words i mean it really i think that's like super important you know and i'm just like bl- blown away we're like we're still with maimonides right i mean this is like <laughs> you know this is someone like 12th century um uh dead guy uh who um who is like has recognized that this was something going on then like Mm -hmm. this is not unique to our generation this is actually something that is a human situation and 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 people from that long ago and longer have have had to approach this so i mean i think that's amazing so we're we're at step four with apology Right. And this is and presumably it's because if you were if you did the apology right at the confession step, you're still the harm doer, basically, like nothing's changed. And so then it's checking a box. Whereas if you've been already all of these things and all of this learning has happened, you're a different person and you get it in a different way. Mm. And so that apology is coming from this place of remorse and a deeper space of being actually able to see the person that you hurt. And it's coming from more open heart. Um, and then uh, after apology, then, uh, you know, step five is pretty organic. Like if you've done all of this work and you've done it correctly, then pretty easily you get to the last place, which is, um, when the opportunity to do the thing again comes up and it always does, you don't do it. You make a different choice. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is so helpful. And I just, you you kind of imagine this is interpersonal. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, this can happen at a familial level. It can happen in certainly in religious institutions. Yep. I mean, you know, if you want to drive yourself crazy, listen to pastors talk about how they, sh- you know, women should stay with their abusing husbands and forgive oh, them. Cool. I mean, you know, I, I mean, it really like, I, I can't even... You know, I mean, it's it, I didn't have the language that you've just given me to talk about it. But this is like, you know, you, you know, when you're making that kind of shortcut, that it's just non-existent. Um, and uh, but then it, it can also be society. I mean, you know, when we think about what we're wrestling with, the, with the legacy of slavery in this country and how mm-hmm. fearful people are, white people, I'll say, about like the conversation about reparations you know, and and you know, reparations did happen, by the way, after the end of slavery. It was, it, but it was the white people who got <laughs> who got money because their slaves were no, no, no. This is real. This is real. 
this is like got, an, got yeah, the, the slaver the the, in, right. the slavers got money and it was right. called reparations is that nuts or nuts so you know right. so so i mean not nuts because you know it's it's just it you know it's not should not be surprising but we have That's used the term right. reparations terribly before but our in our country if we think about you know that these this ain't really really like relevant but also, you know, deep Jewish wisdom from the 12th century, we could actually begin down that path. But people are so scared about it um, that it's, you know, it, it's it's terrifying. But also it can be it can be in, um, you know, as you say, it could be institutions. It can be anywhere. I mean, these this is and, and it could, it's all of us, by the way. Like, I like the way you said that. It's just like this is not like those people should really be mm-hmm. looking at this. You know, none of us. You know, none of us are are um, are perfect. And so this. I mean, I do think like the roadmap idea is like the next time we're in a situation where we're we're seeing this. I just think like I, I want to again on repentance and repair, making amends in an unapologetic world. Tell talk to me about unapologetic. Like that is a really interesting uh, kind of you know colon. Boom. Like, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to you when we say an unapologetic world? I, you know, I know unapologetic is usually used in this, like, you know, kind of often in this, like, kind of corporate white feminism, girl power kind of way, like, ah, ah, ah. but it's, it's actually not good to not apologize. <laughs> and the defensiveness that people have. Right. <laughs> not actually reckon with the right. harm that right. they have caused. Yeah, it's yeah, a problem. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, you know, as you're saying, like, listen, we're all, we all are harm doers. We all have been harmed. We're all bystanders to harm. Right. This is this is all of us. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, a scholar in residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. Her latest book is titled On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. Danya, I really appreciate having you with us today on State of Belief Radio. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. We need to take a quick break, but we're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, Harun Mogul, author of Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision for a Muslim Future. And later, the author of The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life, Simran Jeet Singh. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack. How do the results of the midterm elections affect the prospect for state-based single-payer healthcare systems? Will state governments continue to subsidize the private insurance system and defend the status quo as we lose money and lives? To find out, we recently spoke to Michael Lighty, president of Healthy California Now. Well, the question is, I think, for elected officials at all levels is, are they going to continue to subsidize and the private insurance system and 
not control costs in any meaningful way, as people have less choices in healthcare and less ability to uh, afford it, or are they going to actually reach the solution? And it's not, it's really, it's crunch time to take on the deep pockets in the healthcare industry who have spent millions of dollars in this last election. The insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, the dental association, the hospital systems, they have spent millions of dollars to defend the status quo, which only benefits them as it costs all of us more and more in terms of treasure and lives. And will the Democrats break from the insurance companies? Will they no longer be in the pocket of a healthcare industry that is murderous and costly? That is the political moment we're in. The full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. It's been over 12 years since the first time Haroon Mogul was on this program. He's been, he's been back many times since then, increasingly as a successful author. Earlier this year, Haroon released his latest book entitled Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision of a Muslim Future, and it's among our favorites for 2022. Haroon, welcome. Thank you for having me. I can't believe it's been 12 years. You get a special medal that you have to wear every time you uh, talk to the show, Uh, but we're thrilled. And also, congratulations on this book. Tell me why you felt like this was the book that you wanted to write right now. So I... I had written a book called How to Be a Muslim, which was actually the story of how most of my life up till then I had tried and failed to be a certain kind of Muslim. So it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but uh, not everybody got the joke. And many folks came to talks and picked up the book thinking it would be just that, a guide to being Muslim, which I thought was quite audacious for a book that's not that long. And it, it got me thinking that maybe I should actually write a book about what it means to be a Muslim. And so the initial idea was was quite simple. It was just supposed to be a little introduction to Islam. Uh, and, and as I started writing, it, it transformed itself completely from who are Muslims in the past and, and maybe the present uh, into uh, who can Muslims be and who should Muslims be. So from a book that looked to uh, what had come before to a book that was looking into what was coming ahead and how to prepare for it. Amazing. And so the, the title is Two Billion Caliphs. Can you say, explain to us what a caliph is, uh, which not everybody might um, understand that reference? So probably most people have heard the term if they've heard the term in reference to either historical caliphates, uh, kind of like empires, dynasties, monarchies, that sort of thing. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was was the the probably the most formidable of those and probably the most well-known. And then uh, in, in much more unfortunate circumstances, the ISIS iteration, which popped up uh, before COVID and, and was quite brutal, but fortunately short-lived, although it did uh, a tremendous amount of damage in, in the regions where it operated. And so the term, I think, was was in currency in Muslim spaces as well as in public conversations, and I wanted to investigate the term. And the more I looked into the Islamic sources, specifically the Quran, 
actually the original iteration of caliphate, the first use of the term is as a word that describes Adam and Eve, and then uh, in, in theory and in ambition, all of humanity, that every single person, uh, or at least Muslims in, in this uh, version, are caliphs, as in we are stewards or custodians of God's creation, that we have a special authority and a special responsibility and a certain kind of unique moral agency. And I wanted to dwell on that and, and stop focusing so much on hierarchical models of Muslimness that constantly try to slot us into certain positions vis-a-vis -vis one another with a few at the top and everyone else at the bottom just going along into something that was more democratic, more organic, uh, more local and, and more resilient. And certainly I thought that was something we needed for uh, the years and decades ahead. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, you know, this... You know, I, I come from the Baptist tradition, which right now there's like Baptists who call themselves bishops and all this kind of stuff. But the real like foundation of it is like really like radical priesthood of all believers and and the soul freedom and the, the sense that every single person is uh, is able to have that full dignity of a full like, you know, a, a full Christian and that there's actually no one else that has that over them. And I think the idea that this is totally new to me, by the way, and thank you for the writing this already, you know, this idea of the, the, the caliph is something that, you know, every Muslim can embody is just, I think, a very powerful idea, especially as we look around the country. You know, I'm thinking about Iran immediately, but this idea of like who gets to say for who another person what a Muslim is, and you know, I, not to single out Islam, that happens in every tradition. You're not a Christian, you're not a Jew, you know. But I think, you know, right now we see that in so many places around the country, like certain people, the gatekeepers of what, you know, what, what counts as Muslim. I really appreciate that you're putting in that work. Like, so for, what did you uncover or, you know, discover? I, I like to say that for me, like writing is revelation. Like often, you know, when I when I have to preach or I have to do something and I start writing, I'm like, oh, I didn't even know I thought that. I'm wondering if you had that experience. Like, what did you uncover uh, or what was revealed when you started writing this book about uh, specifically about what counts as being a Muslim? Well, so so when I started writing the book, it was it was before COVID. And so we lived in a very different world and uh, certainly a very different world than, than what has transpired in the last year. And, and there's two events in specific I want to focus on. The first is a little bit more than a year ago, uh, the fall of Kabul and the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. And then not so many months later, the, the Russian invasion, or I guess second invasion, depending on how you look at it, uh, of, of Ukraine uh, in February. So coming up on almost a year now. And I think those two events together, if, if you take them as bookends, they really mark the end of uh, the, the post 9-11 era. That, that in the United States, pretty much across the board, Islam is no longer the bogeyman. Uh, there are certainly Islamophobia and, and there is bias against Muslims, but we are not in, in the public consciousness as the biggest problem. Some, some people will make that China, some people will make that Russia, uh, some folks will make that the other political party, uh, but certainly we're kind of lower down on, on the scale now. And, and what that meant to me was really for the first time, Muslim communities, certainly in the West, but for perhaps more broadly, for the first time in, in two decades, we are free from a certain kind of weaponized binary that, that some Muslims advanced and, and some folks in the West advanced that you're either on this side or that side. And so I asked myself, who are we going to be now? Who should we be? Who can we be? And, and that's where I, I went to the idea of caliphate, literally to get to what you're saying, this idea of, of the sort of that the priesthood of all believers kind of thing is, is not so dissimilar, is this idea that 
everyone is judged by God as an individual and something I was always vexed by growing up. I came from a pretty religious family. America and I, I think maybe Canada are the most ethnically diverse Muslim nationalities in the world, which is kind of fascinating and kind of amazing. And you get these Muslims from all different backgrounds kind of thrown together by geography, economy, what have you. And suddenly they have to find a place to pray. And one family I'd say is coming from Senegal, one family is coming from Indiana, one family is coming from Pakistan, and they're all equally convinced that what they're doing is authentically Islam. And and at, you know, at least outwardly, no one can judge and you know look into someone's heart, but outwardly, everyone is committed to this tradition, yet has very different ideas of what that means. And so that was one take on it. But the other was that people didn't want to yield their take because of this idea of, of universal individual accountability, that actually uh, Islam is contrary to how many people present it, including in Muslim spaces, you mentioned Iran, and Iran is a perfect case in point. It is a very individualistic religion in the sense that every human being, male, female, rich, poor, black, white, what have you, uh, has to stand before God for judgment. And, and you can't really pass the buck. I, of course, obviously, people have different levels of capacity in the world and, and different things to answer for. Uh, certainly, if you have more power, you have more responsibility. But at the end of the day, we have choices and we have freedom or we should have choice and we should have freedom. So that's really where this came from, this idea of, OK, now we can we can imagine a different kind of future. We have to imagine a different kind of future. And what is the role of faith in that future? I'm curious when you think about a, a vision of a Muslim future, let's take that really like, you know, to to our own country and like what will look good to you? as a Muslim and for the Muslim community and for America as a whole in like 25 years, if we could somehow do this right. And I love, you know, what I love about what I'm hearing you is like, there is a kind of a, a, uh, a positive frame uh, and, and yet it's going to take work, but what, what would it look like? Like what will a positive future look like? And then, then walk us through what we need to do to get there. Sure. So, uh, you know, it's it's funny because this connects to a question I know you're going to ask me later, but there's a there's a saying by I believe it was Dwight Eisenhower that that every American has to have a religion, but I, I don't care which one it is. I'm, I'm sure I'm garbling that up. But uh, effectively, what he was saying is that America as a democracy only functions if there are civil religions. And, and I think there's something to that. So after 9-11, there was a lot of conversation about whether Islam and the West were compatible. And I think these were often very superficial or zero sum conversations. And and where I stand now is I think that that for the United States, uh, you know, we as a country and actually the Islamic tradition have certain similarities. And, and these are these are similarities that exist in a lot of traditions. So I don't mean by any means uh, to say that this is simply exclusive to Islam as a faith tradition. It's just the faith tradition that I know well. Uh, but in the Islamic tradition, there is this idea of individual agency, which certainly you find in Christianity and Judaism and Sikhism and other faith traditions. And what that means is that ultimately what Muslims are doing on a day-to-day -day basis is applying their moral reasoning and their circumstances and contexts and emotions and, and needs to sacred text. And, and we as Americans, obviously America is a political idea, it's not a religion, but we do something similar. That, that That's what it means to be in a democracy. And, and we have to learn how to respect each other's rights to do that. Now, one thing I think mm -hmm. as a Muslim makes this a little easier for us is that I've never really had a problem accepting that mainstream culture doesn't go my way. So for example, we've seen a lot of conversation in certain Christian spaces around uh, losing America, quote and unquote, that America is turning on Christianity. And I can't quite see it that way as a Muslim, principally because I've, I've never imagined just for demographic reasons that America would really be a society that would follow my cultural or religious norms. So 
you know, as a, as a very trite, silly example, it never bothered me when someone said Merry Christmas, because I just assumed that I, you know, I live in a country where most people are Christian or, or uh, culturally Christian. And so that's just what it is. And, and so, you know, I didn't get off Friday afternoon, but as long as I had a reasonable accommodation, I kind of didn't mind. And I think we're reaching a point as a country of pluralism where we're going to have to learn how to accept each other's rights, especially in the really awkward places where they bump up against each other. And I mm. think part of that requires a shift. So in a lot of Muslim spaces, we have a lot of talk of responsibility, not a lot of talk of rights. So in, in Iran, for example, there's not a lot of talk about human rights from the governmental level, right? Certainly there's a lot of talk about responsibility uh, as in what the state will enforce and expect you to do. And I think in the US, we've gone too far in the other direction that we have a lot of talk about rights, but we don't have a lot of talk about responsibility. And so if we look at the conversation around COVID, I'm not really sure how we became as a country, uh, you know, I don't remember anyone really up in arms over seatbelts, for example, right? No one, I don't really recall that anyone saw that as an unjust imposition on our freedom. It was just sort of a reasonable- Oh, I think some people did, but it's a good example. <laughs> I think there were, I, I actually think people thought that was like, oh, the communists are coming to get us by-, by So maybe, maybe we have seat. communism in our yeah, 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 guess, yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, but it's, an, it's a perfect example, like, and, you know- um, yeah, yeah. And so and, and that's the thing is, I think that's that kind of uh, and that's a good point. So maybe these are the kind of things that fade over time and we get used to them and, and right. move on. Well, that's I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, but but I, yeah, y your point is good. And so I didn't mean to interrupt. No, Keep no, going. not at all. Not at all. And and so I guess what, what I'm trying to say in terms of a future is I'd like to see a future where Muslims, along with other people of, of strong ethical traditions, whether religious, spiritual, uh, moral, philosophical, what have you, contribute to creating the civil, organic, uh, apolitical fabric out of which a rich democratic society is created. It, it can't be top oh, down. It has yeah. to be bottom up and, and side to side, that kind of thing, because that's what really takes, uh, I think that's what democracies require to function well. And if you don't have that, you, you have either absolute chaos, uh, so you have civil conflict, uh, or you have dictatorship. And I think both are uh, fundamentally hostile to the human spirit, never mind human flourishing. Karun Mughal is an author, public speaker, and occasional Friday preacher who works to build a vibrant role for faith in shaping a better future. Haroon's latest book is titled Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision for a Muslim Future. Haroon, thank you for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having me, Sheikh Paul. We need to take one last break. Up next, Simran Jeet Singh. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Sean O'Brien. Mr. O'Brien is now general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. What do you, now that you're president, general president of the Teamsters, what do you hope to accomplish? As well, I hope to accomplish a, a bunch of different things. I mean, as you, as you stated, we have goals and objectives that we are uh, uh, following. I mean, during the campaign, which Fred Zuckerman, my general secretary treasurer, and our entire executive board, we were campaigning for almost three years. And we were very successful because we were transparent and also inclusive, but very focused on what the platform of the union needs to be moving forward. Look, we're one of the biggest uh, transportation unions in the world. 
it, you know, my predecessors uh, didn't have a vision to fight, didn't have a vision to organize, didn't have a vision to uh, look outside non-traditional teamster means. And the one thing that unions were built upon was their courage and conviction uh, to take on a fight, you know, in the 40s and 50s. Um, so I've always had this discipline and strategy that, you know, in order to move forward in the future, uh, we've got to obviously embrace, you know, what's going to make us successful in the future. But we also have to look back at history and see what made us a success. And that was not being afraid to fight, not being afraid to take on that fight, not being afraid to strike. Um, and so we, we've been very active and, and very uh, transparent, not only to our members, but also to uh, the companies that we represent and who we're gonna have to fight. We, we've been stating our intentions clearly that if you don't give our members everything that they need and want and deserve, then we are going to put you on the street. We are going to take the fight to the street. And that's what happened in the 40s and 50s. That's what built labor unions, you know, having this solidarity, having everybody come together, fight as one. And you've also heard me say one vision, one direction. That's how we're going to be successful. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. You've got us 24 hours a day on your mobile smartphone via the Progressive Voices app. This is the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. It is always exciting to find shared values and teachings across diverse faith traditions. And while the tenets of the Sikh religion may not be known to many non-Sikhs, there's a lot in the book, The Light We Give, How Sikh Wisdom Can Transform Your Life, that's utterly relatable and that is inspiring and illuminating. And part of that is because of the person who wrote the book, my good friend, Simranjit Singh, who I am delighted to welcome to this show. Simran, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. Good to be with you. Well, so first of all, for those who for whom um, the Sikh religion is is not something that they are familiar with, can you just give us the, um, you know, the kind of Reader's Digest version of, of so that people can come into the room with us with some background of, of where you're coming from and what the what the religion is is all about? Yeah, sure. You know, one of one of the interesting things about the Sikh religion is why almost uh, Americans have not heard of it or don't know much about it. It is the world's fifth largest uh, religion with about 30 million people worldwide. It's also one of the younger major religions. It was started about 500 years ago um, in the Punjab region of South Asia. And, and the core philosophy really relies on three elements, I would say. Uh, the first is uh, uh, a deep belief in oneness, the connectedness of all humanity. Um, and that, you know, comes out in various ways, theologically, in terms of how we see equality, uh, non-discrimination, um, how we see the importance of caring for the people around us uh, and the environment, uh, because everything we see is divine. Uh, the second element is, is what I would describe in English as love. Um, and it's, it's a very simple connection here. And that is when you truly feel connected uh, to the world and the people around you, uh, then that's a feeling of love. And, and we know that through our relationships and, and the, the promise of Sikh wisdom is that those momentary uh, experiences of goodness that we have through love is something that we can have in all moments of our life, 
uh, if we are if we learn how to appreciate the connectedness that we all have. And then the, the third aspect of, of Sikh philosophy that I, that I find really compelling um, is, is a corollary to these two. If, if you feel connected and love for the world around you, then your natural impulse is to show up in service. Um, and so service, what we call seva in our tradition, uh, is a really powerful practice, both in terms of it being an expression of gratitude and devotion, uh, serving the people around you, and also uh, as, a, as a spiritual practice um, for, for the self as a way of reducing the ego. So those, those three pieces of Sikh mm. philosophy, um, I, th I think, create a really nice uh, vision for, for what I want uh, the world to look like and, and what it looks like to, to find happiness in a, in a society that can also always often feel difficult. What is a one tenant that in those moments when you have felt most challenged, is there a piece of the the scripture or some sort of tenant that really has helped you in really moments where you were like, how am I going to get through this? Yeah, you know, there, there, there are a bunch that I turn to um, and they've increased over the years as the challenges have grown and I've grown older. Um, but one that comes to mind immediately, and I was thinking about this uh, the other day uh, in a tough moment, uh, you know, I was, I, was, I was walking down the street after an event in New York City and, um, and, and a guy came after me, um, not, not chasing me, but he sort of stepped up to me um, and, and he started yelling at me saying, get out of here with your effing turban. Um, and, um, you know, in those moments, you I've had these moments all my life. You don't really know what the right response is. I think in part because there is no, there is no perfect response and, and getting comfortable with the reality uh, that these situations, because of how we've set them up as a society, um, it's, it's always going to be imperfect and you're always going to walk away feeling like that was, that was a situation I would have rather not had. Um, but what I, what I think about in these moments is, is this, uh, this concept that comes up early in our tradition in our scripture called nidpo. It, it, it comes as two words, nidpo and nidvad. And nidpo means without fear, and nidvad means without hate. And they're essentially descriptions of the divine. Uh, but as descriptions of the divine, they're also qualities that we aspire towards. And there's this one line that came to my mind in this moment, um, and it comes up often for me in, in, in situations like this where it's, it's really unclear how to respond. And, and and the line from scripture is and it's 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 essentially saying the truly wise person is one who doesn't give in to fear and and who doesn't inspire fear in others and you know it's it's a it's a tough tightrope to walk sometimes in a moment like this i could feel afraid of this person and i i that's the natural impulse. So, so how do I live into fearlessness in this moment where this person may very well attack me? I mean, he's very angry at me for whatever reason. And also, how do I respond in a way that's not hateful or angry or fear-inspiring, but but is compassionate to this person? And so, that is that's something that's been really important yeah. for me personally in, in moments yeah. like this. I can I can imagine. I mean, the the title you gave to the book is "The Light We Give." What what where does that come from? What what inspired that title? 
Mm, well, you know, I mean, you just kind of you just you just kind of articulated a little bit of the you know yeah. some of the background of how to give light. But I'm just curious if there's if there's another ref, another reference point for that. Yeah, you know, light is such a common reference in religious traditions. Um, whether we're talking about um, enlightenment uh, as an achievement, if we're talking about illumination uh, in in context of darkness, um, I, I think it's it's such a beautiful metaphor. And, and part of what Sikh philosophy uh, teaches us is that everyone has the same divine light uh, within us. And, and, you know, part of, part of what I wanted to do in, in the time, I mean, I'm, I'm a dad. I love dad jokes. I love puns and double entendres. And so- <laughs> You're like infamous for dad jokes, actually. So we may, we may ask you to, to um, gently harm us with one later, but yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I, I love the, the entendre of, um, you know, the light we give being something you give off light. And also it's something that we can choose to share with others. But but in the, in, in this sort of the, the framing of the title, in, in both cases, um, there's something implicit about we just do this, whether you choose to accept it or not, the uh-huh. light is inside uh-huh. of you. Um, oh, and that. part of the Sikh philosophy, the teaching is the difference between those who are able to find joy in life and those who continue to, to suffer because of the various difficulties we face is, is the ability and the practice of learning to see the light that's always all around us. Um, and so that is, that's something that's been such a powerful teaching for me. I, I love that concept. And so I was trying to bring that into the title a little bit. Beautiful. One of the things that has happened, you know, the Senate passed the uh, Respect for Marriage Act, which um, was really remarkable. And what has been kind of this amazing cascade of Sikh organizations signing on to say, actually, we want to support Respect for Marriage Act, not necessarily because like all of us support marriage equality or what, however you want to call it, but because we recognize that people are different in this country and we want to show up for that. Yeah, I love I love to hear that. In many ways, the Sikh community is agnostic on, on issues like this. I think one of the beautiful things about our tradition is we don't have the kind of hierarchy uh, in other religions. And that's very intentional. Your faith is meant to be interpreted for yourself and we don't need to make uh, arbitrary <laughs> rules for other people in terms of how they should live their lives. But one of the challenges then becomes when there are clear cultural social issues, are we willing to step in and lead with our values? And and for me, something like same-sex marriage is very much in line with with our belief that everyone should have equal rights. I, I find it to be difficult uh, theologically to argue against it. But at the same time, given the immense homophobia and anti-gay bias within South Asian culture, uh, it takes a lot of courage uh, to step forward and take a stand. And so up until recently, um, I haven't seen many six, at least not in, in an organizational sense, taking a position on issues like this. And it seems to be a trend that's been shifting over the past decade or so. Thanks in, in, in a large part to to queer communities who are opening up these conversations and pushing the agenda. But I, I, I love to hear the fact that these organizations are actually now, you know, knowing that there is risk involved, uh, willing to step forward and, and do what they need to drive in terms of their values. One of the things that you really have been forthright about, especially as someone who's mistaken for a Muslim, is not to say, oh, I'm not Muslim. Don't hate me. I'm not Muslim. 
you know, which would be a really easy way to kind of approach that moment. And instead to say, like, actually, that's not the right response at all. For a while, you were a professor and teaching Islam, which is, uh, I think, quite unusual for a Sikh to teach Islam. So I just think that, you know, what you do is you continue to use your spiritual and religious background to cross bridges that are hard to cross, frankly, and and to take stands that sometimes will, not everybody's going to go there with you, but you take them nonetheless and lead. Yeah, well, I mean, I I don't think any of this is all that remarkable, at least in, in terms of uh, our tradition. We have many examples of our, our leaders showing us what it looks like to step up for other people in their time of need. And it might mean that you are more at risk uh, for harm for yourself, but but that's something that you should be willing to do if, if you truly believe in justice for everyone. Uh, and the term we use for that in our tradition is sarbadapala, which means the upliftment of all humanity. And of course, I care about my community. Of course, I would love for uh, Sikhs to have more safety and security in this country and all over the world. But our worldview is, you know, just because I am of one particular religious, I'm not better than anyone who is not sick. I don't deserve more than anybody who is of a different religion or a different race. And so really trying to live into that. And one of the funny things that would come up when I was teaching, I was teaching Islamic studies in Texas in 2016, I think I started. And people would come up to me all the time and be like, well, you look like a Muslim and you're holding a Quran, but you're saying you're something else. And we've never heard of this other thing, but like you're just confusing people. Are you trying to trick us? <laughs> and now, now I have a different challenge, which is I, I teach Buddhist history uh, at Union Seminary. Oh, wow. um, and for me, I mean, my, my main role maybe speaks to this um, in a way that might make sense for people. But uh, right now I, I serve as the executive director for the Religion and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. And our our focus is to ensure that everyone, regardless of what they believe or how they pray, or even if they don't believe, and if they don't pray, making sure that everyone has an equal opportunity uh, to thrive, to find happiness in, in our society. And while that has been our goal for a long time, the unfortunate reality is we haven't reached it. And so for me, it, it really is uh, my life's mission to help at least get us closer to that goal. I don't I don't think we're close enough yet that it feels achievable, um, you know, within the next year, or within the next decade. But but hopefully we can continue going in the right direction rather than rather than going the other way around. Dr. Simran Jeet Singh is executive director for Religion and Society program at the Aston Institute and a visiting professor of history and religion at Union Theological Seminary. He is a columnist for the Religion News Service, and his work has appeared in New York Times, Washington Post, and on CNN. Simran, thank you so much for taking time for State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Paul. Great to spend some time with you. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've had for this week's show. We need your help keeping the show on the air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like the ones we heard today are heard by sharing this program with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. 
Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.